Hello, and welcome to Fort Wayne Ballet's Kinetic Conversations. As part of our podcast series and in conjunction with our upcoming production of Swan Lake, our next few episodes of Kinetic Conversations are focused on the story ballet. Episode one will be a quick history of the story ballet, its format, as well as resulting growth in technical and artistic elements. Episode two, heroes and villains, the characters that propel the stories. And episode three, story through movement or the place of libretto or story, characters, plot, conflict, specifically focusing on Swan Lake in anticipation of our production. For this journey, we are speaking with Fort Wayne Ballet Artistic Director, Karen Gibbons-Brown. So let's get started. Welcome back, Karen. Thanks for having me. So let's just jump right into this, the story ballet. When does it start in the history of the ballet and some of the first story ballets that we might be familiar with? Actually, in the 1600s and even earlier, ballet fit into the opera. It was a part of the movement that moved the story forward or was a diversion, but we didn't really have what we called divertissement at that time. The story ballet came into play really prominently in the 1800s. And uh, there were always stories that had dance around it. But when you talk about a libretto and a specific prescribed story that goes with a specific piece of movement or music, then that really was around the 1700s and into the 1800s. Our fascination at that point in time, and it's what we call the Romantic era, there was always some sort of supernatural thing that happened in the ballet, and they were generally two acts long. The first act would be with people, real humans, and then the second act revolved around the supernatural beings. And many of these were myths and folklore from the countries that they were representing in the ballets. So the first, like you said, romantic period, first ballets that come to mind, La Salfide? La Salfide would be the perfect example. Okay. Um, Giselle is actually the ending of the romantic era, but that is another one. Willies, of course, are a supernatural creature. And there are not so many ballets that we have from the romantic era that have remained in repertoire, but many of the ones we now put into the classical era were revamped for having a happier ending generally, but not always and are from our classical era, and those have remained. Some of those might be La Fille Margarde, uh, Don Quixote, actually Swan Lake, came uh, very early into the classical era and was a terrible failure when it was first presented. So spending just a few more minutes on the Romantic period, there's some things that we've become very familiar with in terms of watching ballet that really sort of appear during this period. Isn't there a few of those elements? There are. The Romantic era was known primarily for three things, the rise of the female dancer. Prior to that time, males had always been the most dominant figure in dance. And if it had been a part for a female, it was often played by a young boy. So the females were now allowed to dance in public and in the performance venue. Those bell-shaped tutus or the longer tutus that we have, they're called romantic tutus, because of the era, for no other reason. And why why did you have the advent of the tutu and it wasn't before? Well, prior to that, the ankles couldn't be shown in public, Okay. the female ankles. So one of the dancers that we have in our history, Marie de Camargo, decided that she had worked awfully hard on her technique and was determined for people to be able to see it. So she cut her skirts up over her ankles. It was quite a scandal. The other thing she did that was scandalous at the time is the shoes that women danced in had small heels on them, very much like ballet flats that people wear today as a fashion statement. And there were a lot of quick little beats or footwork that she did in her presentations, and she was hurting her ankles, so she took the heels off the shoes 
And that was the precursor for what we know as ballet slippers today. And then in the Romantic era, we took that a little bit further and we darned the ends of the shoes and were able to rise up onto point briefly, but yet we were rising up on point, which gave even greater feel to that supernatural thing that everybody was so interested in at that point and in time. And the point actually is built into the story of that supernatural, that elevation right. or going up on point. So Marie Taglioni was a dancer from the Romantic era. She was considered the quintessential ballerina of the time. And she was the first dancer credited with rising on point. Although in studies, we found that she was not the first one to dabble with that. She was the first one to be able to suspend herself on the tops of her toes for some period of time, not like you would see today. And the shoes actually that we have worn as point shoes developed into the shoe we know today in about 1895 and remained pretty much unchanged until about 1980. Hmm. So... That's the Romantic period. I think a lot of people are very familiar, or when they think of ballet, think about the classical period. Specifically, right. we move into right. a lot of the ballets, uh, the Tchaikovsky ballet specifically, but others that people think of. Right. Most of the music that we have for the ballets were written specific for the ballets. That's sort of a marker. When you get into the 20th century, you hear a piece of music and you say, oh, that sounds wonderful. I'd love to create movement to it. But prior to that, the music was written for the ballet specifically. In that particular time period in the classical era, a few things evolved. The point shoes became harder that we talked about a moment ago. Tutus took a shorter view. So not only were we showing the ankles in public, we're now showing knees in public. So the tutus became shorter, which gave greater range of motion and movement. And then the men started to become more prominent in the ballets as well. So in the Romantic era, we call them basically lift and toters, carrying the females around to give them a more supernatural or airy feeling, ethereal feeling. In the classical era, men's technique evolved as well, and they were not only lifting and toting, but they were having serious classical technical variations. Well, and part of that too, when you deal with the early ones, you said there were two acts. Now we move into multiple acts. Yes. So the crossover ballet for that would be uh, Colpalia, and it was originally designed to be a two-act ballet, and of course it's magical with the dolls coming to life. And uh, that didn't quite work out at that time period. People had become tired of that sort of supernatural, everything is dark and things don't always end very well in the romantic ballets. In fact, generally they don't at all. So they added a third act to Coppelia, which we now do as traditional repertoire. So when you get to the classical ballets, four acts and a four-hour long ballet was not abnormal. Well, and part of the, the evolution as well, you talked about the increased technical ability. Those ballets have a formula where there is more that happens related to more of the dancing and the formula within the dancing than the previous ballets based on the technical, correct? Right. They still have the libretto. There is often some sort of unusual, one would say, swans that are women by night might be an unusual or supernatural thing, but they tended to often take on more people-friendly storylines. And then those ethereal things that happened appeared as a part of the dream as opposed to part of real being in life. So after we get done with the classical uh, period, we move into the neoclassical or the beginning of late 1800s, early 20th century, and then into the 20th century. So talk a little bit about those changes. <laughs> Pretty much anything goes. As we crossed into the 20th century, you have the Ballet Russe. 
that shortened many of the ballets that people were seeing as those four hour long ballets, they were shortening and doing bits and pieces of them. Another example of that would be the Nutcracker Suite. We didn't see the full length Nutcracker in America until the 50s. So that was a bit normal at that point in time. In addition, they were doing what we would call abstract ballet. So it may or may not have a story to it. It might just be movement for movement's sake. But you also have some very well-known stories that happened in our 20th century ballets, Romeo and Juliet, mm -hmm. uh, Cinderella. Cinderella. So these are classic stories or stories that were not necessarily written in the 20th century that are now put uh, to movement. The interesting part about those specific ballets that you mentioned, Romeo and Juliet and Cinderella, the movement would be considered classical, not neoclassical, not abstract at all, not contemporary. Sometimes they've been redone because they aren't that tried and true traditional and they've been re-choreographed through times. So they might take on a different view depending on who the choreographer is, but they're very much in the classical technical mode. And finally, just to wrap up this section, um, where do you see the story ballet in its place going forward? I think everybody always loves a good story and escapism is very much a part of what we look for sometimes getting away from the everyday rigor of life or the stresses of life. So I think they do have a place. I think we are, as the world of dance I'm speaking of now, is looking at these pieces. We're trying to figure out how they fit in. And some of them would be considered terribly politically incorrect in this day <laughs> and time. So we're trying to determine how we will move forward with what's so important to maintain with those ballets, which would be the training ground, the technique, the beautiful view. You know, they're extravaganzas. So how do we maintain that and still stay relevant? We'll see what happens. We'll look forward to our production of Swan Lake and also of the stories that are yet to come. So Karen, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Fort Wayne Ballet will perform Swan Lake March 24th through 26th at the Arts United Center. You can purchase tickets by visiting the Fort Wayne Ballet website, artsticks.org, or calling the box office 422-4226. Kinetic Conversations is brought to you by Fort Wayne Ballet and Wayne Shaw Productions. Our guest was Fort Wayne Ballet Artistic Director Karen Gibbons-Brown. If you'd like to receive notifications on future podcasts, please like the podcast and go to fortwayneballet.org to sign up for notifications on performances, podcasts, and more ballet news. You'll also find a library of past episodes on our website in the menu of options. Until next time, I'm Jim Sparrow, and thanks for listening to Kinetic Conversations with Fort Wayne Ballet. has been a Wayne Shout production. Wayne Shout!